it is our hope and our prayer that that's exactly what the Father would say to us when we come and meet Him there in glory down that time when the Lord comes back. So let's take our Bibles and let's do our Bible study this morning. Let's head over to the book of Philippians and find out how we can have that commendation, one other area we can work on that would help us that when we meet the Lord, He would be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, I saw Jesus in you. If you need the sermon notes, the fellows are moving around the auditorium handing them to you. Otherwise, they are in the bulletin. We're headed for the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. If you're joining with us this morning, what we've been doing is a series that we're, we're trying to have done in conjunction with our Sunday school time, talking about worship. And we'll pick up more of this when we get done with the missions month. But this morning, I want to remind you that the last couple Sundays, what I've been doing in the Sunday evenings was talking to the teens in particular on the family and talking to the teens, giving out of the book of Proverbs and some of those other pieces of wisdom literature, some areas, we said 10, there's so many more, but 10 areas, the top 10 areas that teens need to work on, and teens of all ages. In fact, there was the number three, the one that we chose, talked about becoming more grateful instead of complaining, instead of grumbling. And there's so many passages of Scripture out of that section of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, including Job, as well in the Song of Solomon, that talk about having a grateful spirit, but that's not where everybody is at. It seems like sometimes people will just find things to grumble about. The National Park Service had, had, uh, has uh, different spots where you can make suggestions, you can write in, or you can say, okay, here's something I really appreciate and did. And so they, they, every so often, they let out some of the comments and some of the things and publish what, some, what people have commented on and some of those areas. And these people, every one of these comments comes from people who have gone to different parks in the nationals, in national parks where there is wilderness sections. It's advertised. It's stated. It's wilderness sections, rough hiking, rough camping. And here are some of the comments made afterwards. The trails need to be wider so people can walk side by side while holding hands. Another individual wrote, the trails need to be paved so they can be snow plowed in the wintertime. Another individual wrote, the places where trails do not exist are not well marked. <laughs> you got to think that one through a little bit. Okay. Here's another one. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Here's another comment. Chairlifts need to be in some places along the trail so that we can get to the wonderful views without having to hike to them. This one. Escalators need to be installed at areas that are steep. Here's another one. Wherever a trail ends, a restaurant would be nice. <laughs> they get worse. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can be reimbursed for them? Please call. And they gave their phone number. Here's another individual. Now remember, these people are going out and they're camping in the... The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please remove those annoying animals. This one, this is the... There are too many bugs and spiders and spider webs in the woods. Please spray the woods to get rid of all those pests. And my comment in my mind is, you were in the wilderness. What did you expect? And yet at times, 
It's understandable that there are individuals who are just not thankful. In fact, the Bible tells us that there are going to be a lot of people who aren't thankful for what God has done, the creation He's provided. And it warns us in the book of Romans that we who are believers ought not to be of that mindset. We should be different. In fact, we should be people who are very, very grateful. Let me give you an example of a person who showed great gratitude. It's in Philippians. It's Paul who is writing this epistle, and as he's writing, he's going to make several comments about this whole idea of being grateful. In fact, he is going to express this while he is sitting in jail. He is going to say, we need to rejoice. We need to be more grateful. Go back to the beginning of the, cha- of the book and just gloss with me through some of the different, different texts that he talks about. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making this request with joy. Chapter 2, verse 14, he makes this comment. He says, and many wax, uh, chapter 2, excuse me. He says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. We read in chapter 2, verse 17, yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Look at verse 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. Again, with thanksgiving. Jump down to verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished. And time and again he's talking about joy. But you want to know where the joy started from? You go back to chapter 1, verse 5. When he first starts this thank you letter, he says this is the thing that I am so thankful for. He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you in verse 3. Verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy because for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul was so excited because of fellowship. The reason that I'm focusing on that word is because last week we took time. We said now we as a church are called the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ there are certain duties that we have. And so we use this acrostic W-I-F-E wife to say here are our obligations. The last few weeks we talked about worship. We talked about instruction. Last week we started talking about what the Bible teaches about fellowship. And so in that area of fellowship we pointed out that it was a common word that showed up multiple times. The word is koinonia. The word has the idea of working together, the idea of encouraging, the idea of sharing, the idea of, of, of having some commonality. And I've given you every different reference where that one word shows up in the New Testament passages. Well, Paul talks about that and says, makes that comment about your fellowship. Using that same root word where he's speaking about it and saying, I am so thankful for your fellowship. Now, let me remind you, last week we said that fellowship is not just the idea of getting together and visiting, though that has some some merit here. But that idea of visiting, getting together, working together, doing something profitable, just not just sitting there and shooting the breeze about whatever, but fellowship can be about getting together and praying together and encouraging one another and building up one another. 
also in the New Testament, almost every time that it appears in that, those passages that we gave you, it's an active idea of doing something together, working together, being united as a team, fellowshipping to be able to accomplish something. One of the areas that they fellowshipped together was the area of helping provide and meet the needs of other individuals. Whether those individuals be down in Jerusalem during a famine, and he wrote to the Corinthians and he says, we have the fellowship of ministering to the saints or whether it be the problem that Paul was facing and he needed some help and the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, they made fellowship, they made contribution is the way the English translates but it's actually the word fellowship, koinonia the same thing shows up also in Hebrews 13 where it says do good and share our King James says, communicate, but it's the same word koinonia aspect of sharing with one another. It's what he refers to in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, he writes and makes the comment, he says, I am so thankful for your fellowship. He says that in chapter 1 verse 5. And then in Philippians 4, as he winds down the letter, he has a section that's his thank you note. And in this thank you note, he makes the comment, he says, you did communicate. It's the root word for koinonia, same word. You did communicate with me in my affliction. And so Paul is excited because of the fellowship. What they had done is that they had helped him out financially. They had given some of their resources. Here, let's set the scene of what's happening in the book of Philippians. Paul is in prison at the time that he's writing to them. He has been in prison for a period of months now. He's in Rome. He talks about being in his bonds in all the palace. Everybody can see. So he's there in Rome and he's in this prison. And while he's there, he's got to take care of his own self, his own needs. But he's by himself himself. And so what happens is he's there, he's not sure if he's going to survive. He even says, and I read it already, where he says, I don't know if I'm going to be offered or sacrificed because I preached the gospel on your behalf. And so he doesn't know if he's going to survive this imprisonment. He does. But at the time he's not certain. And being all alone there in the prison, he has to have his needs taken care of, but there's nobody on the outside to bring him the food to help him out. The Philippians hear about Paul being in jail. The Philippians know that he He's got needs all of a sudden that he can't provide for himself. So what they do is they fellowship with him. They put together a gift financially. They send it to him via a messenger from their church. His name is Epaphrodites. Epaphrodites carries their love offering, their financial gift to Paul who's in prison and then he uses that, Epaphrodites does, to help Paul have his needs met and stays with Paul for a period of we don't know how long. But it's a it's uh, apparently quite a f uh, few weeks or months that he is with them and giving Paul some assistance. And finally, Paul has to say, I need to send Epaphroditus back to you because you're concerned about him. He's been gone so long. And Paul, when he sends that back, he sends Epaphroditus back, he sends this letter called Philippians. And in the last chapter, it's his thank you note. And in his thank you note from like verse 10 and on, he makes comment, I am so grateful. I am so thankful for the monies that you gave me for the fellowship gift. That's fellowship. You gave me something. You helped me out financially and I am so grateful. And when he writes this thank you note from verse 10 to the end of the chapter, he includes what that gift meant and did for him. The results of that gift. The benefits of that financial gift that the church sent to him. And so when it comes to fellowship, by giving gifts financially to somebody like a Paul, here's what we want to note. 
that that type of fellowship, that type of giving assistance to somebody, it can really encourage them. It prompted great joy in Paul's life. It really benefits and helps and encourages. Paul wrote, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Then he gets off to, uh, and explains some things. And then he says, you did well. He commends these people for all that they've done in those last few verses of Philippians. Now, I remind you that this was such an encouragement for Paul for some of the things that I've already mentioned. He's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He's all by himself. He doesn't have many provisions. And all of a sudden, Epaphroditus shows up. Epaphroditus is there and saying, we're going to help you out. We've provided some funds to buy you some food, to take care of your needs here in prison as long as you're there. And Paul found their care of him. We read it in Philippians 4 when we read the passage. We read such words as verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished, wherein you were also careful. The word care and careful have the idea of thinking of me. Your concern would be even a better way of translating it. Your concern of me, your feelings towards me, your consideration of me. He says, I am so grateful because what this represents is you didn't forget me. You were, you were thinking about me. You were praying for me. And he found that's tremendously encouraging to his heart. It was such a benefit. And the Philippians, they did this. They did this not because they had to. In fact, let's, let's think about it. They gave these gifts though they had difficult situations. They themselves were facing some problems. We read in chapter 1, go to, back to chapter 1 and you look at verse 28, that they themselves were undergoing some persecutions where he refers to it and mentions... And he says, and in nothing we are terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you salvation. But he goes on, he says, but unto, for unto you it is given on behalf of Christ not only to believe, but also to suffer. These people were suffering persecution. And yet the persecution didn't stop them from putting together a gift that would help Paul out. They were experiencing poverty. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul is writing the Corinthians, he is referring to the churches of Macedonia, and later he clarifies it's the church of Philippi. That the church of Philippi, they helped him out previously for in a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. These people didn't have much. But they put together this gift to send to Paul that God used in a tremendous way. They didn't let their own problems stop them from being charitable to help out this missionary. In fact, they had, we, were, we would make this observation. There weren't other churches doing this. They did it even though they were the, they were the only ones to do so on a regular basis. Paul writes in this, in this text and talks about how you only, you're the only ones. You jump down into the passage in chapter 4 and you say, and you read where he makes the comment. Now you Philippians verse 15 know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. The other churches, they didn't want to give to him. They they were, they were getting people coming into their churches, questioning Paul's methods, questioning Paul's ministries, challenging whether or not he was a legitimate preacher of God. So most of the other churches backed away. They didn't like the way that Paul was doing things. They didn't think that a missionary should end up in jail. Well, he ended up in jail because he preached. But they were backing away from him. It was the Philippians. 
that though other churches did not continue to provide their uh, Paul's needs, they did. Despite what others did or didn't do, they gave. In fact, they gave when they didn't have to. They gave when they weren't asked to do it. They weren't coerced to do it. Paul never wrote them and said, please send me a gift. In fact, in this text, he goes over and he says very clearly, he says, I didn't ask for it. Watch what he does. He's, he's so ever so careful financially. He starts with the verse 10 of Philippians 4. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again wherein you were also careful but you lacked opportunity. Not, not, not that I'm saying. Not that I'm speaking in respect of want. Not that I'm saying, okay, I'm not, I'm not giving you a subtle hint that I have needs for I have learned, he says, in whatsoever state I am, and therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer. And I can do this. I can handle this lack. I can be content with what I have. Even though it's little, I can do all things, in particular what he's talking about in context. I can become content and just trust in the Lord and through the strength of the Lord. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. That's what he's talking about. Learning to be content, not complaining, not begging for gifts. And so he makes it clear, I didn't ask for a gift. I didn't beg you for a gift. I didn't coerce you to send a gift. Notwithstanding, he makes the comment. And as the passage goes on, he says, notwithstanding, he says, you did well. I'm not saying I didn't appreciate your gift. I didn't need your gift. I didn't, I didn't ask you for a gift. But I appreciated what you sent me. And so he's trying to walk that tightrope of a line to try to make sure that people understand. Why? Because he's been accused of being a huckster. He's been accused by so many other churches of saying that he was after money. And Paul gave up the right to be able to be supported in this church. They jumped on, on his needs and they said, we're going to help you out. We know that you're a man of ethics. We're going to give you assistance. And they gave the assistance. And Paul says, even though I didn't ask you, I appreciate what you've done. Thank you. And when you, when you heard of my needs, he said, you, you didn't do things that sometimes because you didn't have opportunity. But when you heard of my needs at the end of verse 10, you took the opportunity. You took the occasion and you were so generous to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I greatly rejoice because you gave out of your poverty. You gave when nobody else was doing it. You gave when you weren't asked. You gave even though you have given in the past. We already read it where he says that your, that your care of me, your concern has rebloomed. It has sprouted afresh. It has, it has shown up once and again. And he mentions it in verse 15. He says that you helped me out in the past. And he says in verse 16 that when I was in Thessalonica, you sent twice to me. And here is this church that's been very generous to Paul. They've been very kind to him. They have given in the past, and yet they continue to give to him in his ministry because he was legitimate having needs. And he writes and he says, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it impacted him. It helped him out tremendously. It was such a blessing to him. So what you have here is you have Paul getting spiritually pumped because though he was down physically, this church helped him out. He's on the front lines and God used that church and their sacrifice, their gifts to encourage him and build him up while he is facing on the front lines of spiritual battle, being in jail and sharing the gospel. It was reassuring for him that saints still cared. 
Now that's one of the benefits that he says happens when people give. Second benefit that happened when these people in Philippi gave to their missionaries it not only encouraged the missionary but it pleased the Lord. Look at how he defines this. He says in verse 18 after he's talked about how you've been so generous he says, I have all, I abound. I am full, having received from Epaphrodites the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. You know what he's saying? You know what Paul is getting at? Paul is calling their financial gifts, he's saying that this was a form of sacrifice. This was a form of an offering. Now he's speaking under the, under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he is saying that even though I am the recipient and I got the monies, you collected them for the Lord's work and for the Lord's minister and therefore God sees them as a sacrifice unto himself. That you would do this for one of his children who's on the front line. Now Paul has made it clear and God has made it clear that not all sacrifices were the animal on the altar. Not all sacrifices had to be a physical gift of some sort brought like in the Old Testament. In fact we read that God considered some of the great sacrifices like in Psalms the sacrifice of a broken spirit, of a repentant heart. It wasn't an animal, it was a person's spirit. God said in other passages how he, we are supposed to present ourselves a living sacrifice. God has said in Hebrews that our praise and our worship is a sacrifice of our lips, something given to the Lord. Whether it's ourselves, our, our repentance, our praise to God. And here in this text, he is saying your financial gifts that you give to that ministry of Paul's, you were giving it as a gift to the Lord. It was a sacrifice. He calls it not only a sacrifice, but he says it's a well-pleasing sacrifice that God put his approval on it, that God was, was overjoyed by that financial sacrifice that the Philippians made. Now let me, let me point out some, another word here. He calls it a sacrifice of sweet odor or, or, or a wonderful fragrance. That term comes from the Old Testament where in Leviticus he talks about different sacrifices as being sweet-smelling sacrifices. In this text of Leviticus he talks about five different sacrifices. When he mentions them and describes them, he makes it clear that the first three, the burnt meal and peace offerings, that they were voluntary. That they, they weren't coerced. They were just, the individual could come and do them impromptu at any time they chose to. They could do them of their own accord. Those three he calls sweet-smelling sacrifices in the Old Testament. Now Paul, years later, is using that same terminology. And he says, what you gave to the Lord so that I could be benefited and helped in my ministry, he says, what you gave was a sacrifice. It was well-pleasing and it smelled good to God. It, 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 God enjoyed it. Now, there's certain things that we enjoy, right? If all of a sudden we had popcorn going out in the foyer, that smell would permeate this room and some of you would start licking your chops. And that popcorn is really, a, it's a wonderful smell. There are other things that are wonderful smells. Like I remember people had said, now I'm not an expert in selling home, like Irene and John, they are, they, they've done those for, in their careers. I'm, I'm not. But they used to, I used to read articles say if you're selling a home, what you should do when you're having a showing is put an apple pie in the oven and let that apple pie permeate the house so it reminds people of 
grandma's house or something very homey. Okay? Now, people like different smells. We're getting in close to spring one of these months. Okay? And the lilacs will come and they're sweet smelling. Now, some of you have odd, odd desires for smell. Pastor Binkley, he says one of those really, really sweet smells is truck diesel exhaust. <laughs> that explains a lot, Earl. Okay. <laughs> But it takes him back into his time. Now, some of you, some of you say, oh, yeah, I love the smell of gas. I love the smell, whatever it might be. I think what would be sweet of babies. Yeah, I mean, when they're clean. Okay, when they're clean, okay. <laughs> sweet smelling, and they're sweet, and they're wonderful. And you grab that baby who has been changed, and you go, oh, and it's a sweet smell, right? Yes? You know what God gets excited about? I never thought about this before. God smells your offering. Now that's an odd one. But he says, this is sweet smelling to me. This is some, this is, I enjoy it. So does God enjoy what we've given to him? Is that what he, is that, well I should rephrase that. Does God enjoy what and how you gave it? What does he smell on you? And Paul says, this is, this is something that God approved of. That it was pleasing to the Lord when you gave. Can I give you something else that, that he says is a benefit or a result of giving in this fellowship sense of giving to somebody in ministry who had that need? There's a third result. The third result, it produces eternal rewards for those who give. He goes on and he makes this comment. He says in verse 17, he's saying, okay, you gave, you gave. I'm thankful for your gifts not because I desire a gift. He says it again. I'm not saying thank you so that you do it again. I'm not desiring any more gifts. If you do, that's great. But here's what I really desire. I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Well, what's he mean by that? What is he implying? What is he saying? He is saying that the financial gifts that these people were making were going to be able to have some type of bearing to before the Lord that would have benefit to them even in eternity. Okay, he's not after money. But he's going to talk about that idea. There's fruit. It's going to benefit you. It's going to go to your account. Now, what Paul does is Paul is using in this text banking terms. The banking term that he uses here is, is a really full word. It's a, it's a big concept where he says that, that fruit may abound to your account. It really has the idea of may continuously keep on increasing. It was a compound interest concept. It was the idea that what you invest will just keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on building. And it's going to magnify and it's going to multiply. And he's using this, this active word. He's using this idea of overflowing that what investment you make financially into these ministries, it's going to bear you some great results. Okay, let's talk just for a second. Compound interest. Let's talk about how that looks to just as an illustration. Three people who are going to put aside monies. These three people, that what they did, they all put aside in this chart the same amount of money. They all did it in a 10-year period. But they did it at different points. They left the money until age 20, uh, 65. Sam did it when he was between ages 25 and 35. The next person, Jennifer, does it between age 35 and 45. The last person waits to do his savings until 45 to 55. 
and then leave it there. And I don't remember the interest rates, either 10 or 6%. I don't remember off the top of my head. But what happens is they leave it there and it compounds. It's growing, this interest over a period of time. And as when it's all done and all over, Michael, by that same amount of money that he put there and left there, after age 35, it's worth a million and a half. Jennifer, who waited for 10 years, has half that money. Sam, who waited until later, has a lot less money. Same amount. But the idea is just to illustrate that compounding interest just builds and really magnifies and multiplies. That's the term Jesus, uh, Paul is using in this passage saying when you invest, you're going to have something that's compounding, that keeps growing to its maximum amount. And so the return here is something that he says will have some eternal rewards. Now, this isn't the only time, ooh, that was close. This isn't the only time, some of you are saying, yeah, I knew he would one of these days. <laughs> it's not the only time that God has stated that financial investment benefits in eternity. There are multiple passages. Jesus warned when he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, lay not your, up your treasures here on earth, but rather he's talking about laying your treasures up in heaven where things don't rust and rot and they can't be stolen. How do you do that? How do you lay up money in heaven? He says in the passage we read a little bit ago, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who gives richly to enjoy things. It's okay for us to have money. It's okay to enjoy those things that we can get that they can do good with their monies. To be rich in good works, ready to share, willing to koinonia, fellowship, share and help out while laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. In those concepts that he's saying is that somehow our financial distributions, our gifts that we give, our fellowship gifts that we give to ministry, it's somehow, way, God accounts for it, and somehow, way, God says it will benefit us in eternity. Now, he is not saying that by doing that we earn our way into heaven. So the more money we give, the better place we're going to get in heaven. Okay, give me money and then your sins are forgiven. Well, that's what some of the churches taught years ago. That was that whole Reformation debate. Can you buy forgiveness? And the answer is no, no. If we could buy forgiveness, why did Jesus come from heaven? If we could buy forgiveness, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did Jesus make the comment when he's dying on the cross, it is paid in full? That he has already satisfied the payment, the debt for our sins. It was his life, his death, and his resurrection, and that alone that gives us forgiveness and it makes it possible for us to get into heaven. It's not our money. It's not the money that we give or the money that we keep. It, is not, it has nothing to do with finance. That is not what this verse is saying. In fact, I'll give you the illustration, the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross does not get into heaven because he gave money. He didn't have any money at that moment when he's on the cross next to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, remember me this day when you enter paradise. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because that man moments before had repented of his sin. He said, we deserve to be here, but not this one. He's righteous. He asked Christ to give him forgiveness. He didn't get baptized. He didn't join a church. He didn't give any money. He looked to Jesus and asked Jesus for forgiveness of sins and asked Jesus to be the one to take him into heaven. He got born again. 
He got saved. He got converted. Whatever term you want to use, that man got eternal life because he looked to Jesus, not to anything he had done. That's how we get saved. We don't get into heaven by, by doing things like I've mentioned, baptism or going to church. We don't get to heaven by giving money and helping the poor. Now, those are things we should do, but they do not get us into heaven. It is Jesus and Jesus only who gets us into heaven. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father, but it's not by your bank account. So then what did Paul mean when he said, laying up for ourselves a good foundation against the time to come that we may lay hold on eternal life? There's an ancient manuscript that has a footnote that is very insightful from one of the early years. And it says that we may hold on life indeed, the ideas the author put in there, knowing what is of value for eternity. That we realize that our monies, our investments into witnessing, winning souls, the investments we make in missions to be able to help them to get to the land, to share the gospel, to train pastors and teachers, to start churches. That is what's going to last is the souls. But it's our funds, our monies that we invested into those ministries that are really going to have eternal effect and impact. So in that sense, by you and I doing what the Philippians did, sacrificing out of our poverty, sacrificing out of our problems, and giving a fellowship gift to those who are on the front lines, that benefits us. That benefits us in a way that all of a sudden we are laying up in store in heaven. If we can do it this way. The Bible talks about five different crowns that believers can earn. The crowns that you get for faithfulness. You see it all listed here. You can read it for yourself. But those crowns include living a holy life. Those crowns include enduring persecutions. Those crowns include, for some, being a faithful pastor. They include sharing the gospel. Those crowns are given to believers who have been faithful stewards of their time, of their body, of their activities, of their treasures. And God says that I will give you crowns when you stand before me. And if you have those crowns, then what you can do is I will assign you in eternity jobs or responsibilities based upon the rewards of the crowns. Well, obviously, what, uh, there's some aspect of this that isn't spelled out further than what we've read where even our investing in ministry, our investing in ministries, we will somehow, some way, merit crowns and responsibilities and rewards in heaven. So when we look at it and say, now this is an investment financially, to give to the Lord's work, to be able to financially give. That's part of that fellowship as we work together to give the way you have done it so faithfully over the years, it's going to reward you. It's going to please God. The way you have done, it's going to encourage those on the front line. But let me give you number four. Number four in this text, it procures God's promise by giving a fellowship gift. It procures God's promise of providing for you in this life. He says in verse 19 in this text, he goes on after he says, God is satisfied. He has that sweet smell of your sacrifice. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. Now understand that verse 19 is in context with everything he said up to this point. What he's saying is God, and Paul very emphatically says, my God, my God will do this for you. 
The way my God has met my needs, my God will meet your needs. My God has met my needs while I'm in prison, I'm alone, I felt destitute, but my God, that same one, will meet your needs. He's going to take care of all your needs. In fact, he goes on, he says, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. This is a, this is a promise from God's mouth. He says, my God promises you this. My God will meet your needs, your real needs, not our, not our wants, okay, but your real needs. And they vary in this room. They vary by age, they vary by need of family, but God's going to provide. God, he says, is going to meet all your needs, not just some. My God shall supply all your needs. Whether you have a few or you have a lot, my God will supply for you. But notice it's going to be for givers only. For only like the Philippians, this promise is, is a promise to individuals who fellowshiped gave, who were giving those types of gifts to help out those on the front line. But it's for all of those who gave. All of those who gave in a sense like the Philippians did in a sacrificial way. And he says, God's going to do this. He's going to meet your needs and he's going to keep on meeting those needs. It's not going to be once in a while. And he says that he's going to do this. And this isn't the only time that God promised this. There are multiple other passages that talk about how God will bless those who learn to give charitably. Those who scatter. Those who withhold. It's not gonna, their needs aren't going to be met. They're not going to be handled the same way. God says that those who have a bountiful eye, they are charitable with what, what stewardships, what finances he's put into their care. He says, I, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, I'm going to assist you. He says that if you honor me, if you are faithful to me, you're talking to the Old Testament people in a culture where there was farming, he says, your barns are going to overflow. Your wine presses, they're going to burst forth. He says, and Jesus says, when he's preaching <coughs> the Sermon on the Plain, he says, given it will be given to you. It's going to be stamped down. It's going to be shaken. It's God's going to meet all your needs if you've given. Okay, and he's going to give you in the same way. In 2 Corinthians, where he's talking to the Corinthian church and encouraging them to be able to give to the needs of other ministries on the mission field, he says, I say unto you, he which sows sparingly, he's going to reap sparingly. He which sows bountifully, he's going to get that in return. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, we're not going to tell you. Paul says, we're not going to say, okay, you're assigned this much, you're assigned that much, you have to give this much. He says, you're going to have to, this is between you and God. What do you purpose in your heart? Give. But don't give like you're being forced. Don't give like it's a real chore. Give cheerfully. Give with the saying it's an honor to invest in the Lord's work for God loves the hilarious giver. And he goes on, he says, and our God is able to make all grace abound to you. That you always having all your needs met in all things may abound to more good works. Our God's going to take care of you. He goes on and he says that it's going to happen according to the riches in Christ Jesus. That's a lot of riches, friend. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This, this is my father's world. His bank account does not look like yours. Okay? His credit score is really, really good. Okay? There's no limit with what God can do and how he can take care of us by meeting our needs, by taking care of If we come to a point where we say, okay, you know, we need to practice Bible fellowship. Okay, you want to talk fellowship? We talk fellowship, and right away we think about food. And yeah, food's involved. Right away we think about, let's just do fun and games. But biblically speaking, some of biblical fellowship is taking an opportunity and working together to provide financial assistance to those on the front line. 
the Philippians took it. They took that opportunity. And like the Philippians, we have an opportunity on our doorstep. We have an opportunity in four weeks, I think it is, that what we are going to do, that you as a church voted a couple Sunday nights ago to raise $220,000 at least, that we would raise in our offerings that would be used for missions. We do this once a year, where we say we're going to set aside everything that comes in and it's not going to our church. It's going to missions ministries. And we've put it aside. The last few years, we raised a quarter of a million on those Sundays. And we do that not so that we can walk out and say, look at us, we're a rich church. We know better than that, amen? Okay. This is just fellowship. This is biblical fellowship. People giving out of their own needs, sacrificially giving to missions projects around the world like the Philippians did. And let this become a well-pleasing sacrifice that smells good in the nostrils of God so that we give in this sense so as to promote and to help God's work. That means at that period in four weeks, those of us who give on a regular basis, we're talking like about ten times more than we weekly bring in. That's, that's hard. That means for some that they're going to say that week, some of you in the past have done this, say, I'm going to keep the portion I usually give to the Lord, I'm going to give the rest of the paycheck to the Lord that week. For some of you in the past, that means that you're going to give a major portion, or if not, the entire you know, period of that, of that time that you've worked, say, that's the, the Lord's for that whole period of time, that whole week. Some of you may get something that's going to be provided in the mail. You might have Uncle Sam sending you something and, you know, because they love you and they care for you. And uh, he's going to give you some of your own money back and you might say that's going to go to whatever you're going to do. But fellowship, fe biblical fellowship is all of us working together to try to promote the Lord's work. Okay? And we do it. We do it because there are some benefits to this. The biggest benefits is it pleases the Lord. It encourages the missionaries. It's going to benefit us financially in the sense that God sees it, God provides back. It's going to, God promises that what we give, He's going to make up to us. He's going to, he's going to take care of our needs. And so you and I have a few weeks to think about this, to pray about it, and say, what are we going to do? How are we going to act out biblical fellowship? Well, let me... Let me have you walk away, not walking away, which I can't help what you're going to think, but instead of walking out and saying, oh, this preacher, all he's doing is begging for money. No, I'm just laying out the scriptures for you. This is what God says. What are you going to do with what God says? Let me encourage you to walk away with two thoughts, two thoughts more than anything else that, that are so important that come out of this text. One is this, no gift that the Philippians gave no gift that you give is overlooked by God. It may be different than what somebody else will give. It may, not, may be more, it may be less. Whatever it is, God will not overlook it. He marks it, he sniffs it, he smells it. He's pleased with it when it's given in a sense of sacrifice and gratitude. And no need then will ever be overlooked by God. That's where Paul is at in this, in this letter. He's come to this point and he's saying your gifts are not being overlooked. Your needs are not going to be overlooked. And as he's winding down in his last few comments, he makes a comment here that he says, you know, with that in mind, he says, my God's going to supply your needs. And then he goes on and he makes this comment. After he's excited about what God's going to do, look at verse 20. It's not the end of the book. 
But he says, now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What's he mean by that? He is enthused. He is excited that his God, his God met his needs. That his God will not overlook what he has sacrificed, what they have sacrificed. That his God is going to take care of the people who fellowshiped with him. And he broke out in praise in that time, in that verse, that sounds similar to a song that we can sing today. A song that you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. A song we call the what? The doxology. Let's sing it to this morning about our God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You can sing it however you want. Okay. Do you really mean it? Do you really mean it? God's given you so much. Is it yours? Or is it God's? Think about it. Pray about it. Father, help us these next weeks as we approach this important topic of how we are going to give sacrificially. Help us to fellowship together with this ministry in mind. How we can fellowship together to help out missionaries and missions around the world. How are we going to give our treasures to you? How are we going to give our lives to you? Father, I pray that as we embark now next week with missions after missions after missions, help us to think about and to thank you for opportunities we have that are coming our way to be able to fellowship with these people in a way that this passage says we can and can and should. Father, thank you for your grace. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And while you're just contemplating the Word of God this morning and what that means to you, if there is some individual or individuals here in this room who do not know that they are on their way to heaven, you in the past may have been relying upon your money. You've been relying upon your good deeds, your good works. You've been relying on the things that you own, that you possess in order to get you into heaven. We have several people standing at the right side of the auditorium willing and ready to show you from the Word of God how you can establish a relationship with Jesus Christ. How you can come to Him and let Him be the one to get you into heaven.